I know that we were here just not too long ago, looking at verse uh, 25, um, but uh, I've seen a, uh, this morning I was reading through some scriptures. I don't, to be honest, well, I know how it happened, the Lord brought, got me there, <laughs> but I was actually uh, looking at some verses about the, the angels and uh, the elect angels and the non-elect angels and Quite a few years ago, six or seven years ago, I did a short message on, uh, I talked about the angels uh, and everything, but I had some thoughts about the elect angels. Anyway, I was reading through a bunch of verses and came up on these verses this morning and uh, kind of seen a little bit of a connection between verse 25 and some things that's found in the previous verses that come before it. but anyway, as I was reading down through this, just a, a lot of things was kind of jumping off the page at me and everything. So uh, I hope the Lord is leading me to preach this. And uh, if uh, I preach it, I pray that it's the truth, and I pray that uh, uh, we find identification from it. Uh, but, uh, let's look at uh, starting in verse eleven. I'm going to read verse eleven and then down to verse twenty. Five. Uh, I know it kind of breaks off. Uh, we're, we're jumping in. I'm going to try not to go back through previous the previous verses one through ten about Melchizedek. I, I, you know, I, I pray we all understand who Melchizedek was uh, and who he represents, or to some who we think he probably was. Uh, my thoughts is is. Uh, uh, that in the Old Testament Melchizedek was the Lord uh, but uh, anyhow uh, his office his priesthood uh, Christ is uh, after that similitude but anyway not to go back through all that and not to press forward past 25 uh, I would like to just kind of stay between 11 and 25 that's where the Lord wants us to stay but we'll follow wherever he wants to go If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment, going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. I'm going to read that again. 
for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh to God. And insomuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Let's bow and go to the Lord. Father, we come once again just grateful for the opportunity that we have to be gathered in your name. And Father, we pray that today as we are gathered that you would be with us and that you would speak to us and that you would minister unto our hearts and unto our minds. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit once again would be our teacher. Father, I pray that as we look into these passages, Lord, that I might not speak of error, Lord, that I might not speak of human wisdom, but that we might exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth that's found in Him and is revealed in Your Word here. Lord, we just pray today that we might see this prophet, this priest, this king, this Lord Jesus Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, who has brought in eternal salvation for His people. May we praise and glory and honor in the work that He has done. Lord, may we lift up our praise and our honor and may we rejoice in the hope that we have, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, once again, we just pray that those that are here, that You just might grant to them understanding, grant to them repentance, Grant to them faith, Lord, to trust and believe on your Son. Lord, we just ask that today that all your elect of God, wherever they may be meeting, wherever they may be under the Word of God being preached, taught, shared, conversed about, Lord, may they be edified, may they be encouraged. And Lord, we pray that in this wicked generation in which you have brought us into during this time period, Lord, we pray that you would keep us safe, safe and may you... Uh, keep us firm and standing upon God's Word and upon the faith of Christ Jesus once delivered to the saints. And Lord, may you keep us safe from the harm that is to beset us because of this wicked, wicked and untoward generation. Again, Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us and the cross that you were upon to take upon our sins and to give unto us salvation. For it's in your name that we pray. The question is, is if the law could make us perfect, whether it be instantaneously or whether it be gradually, 
why is there a need for Christ to have ever come? I mean, that's a legitimate question, I think. Especially in a time that we live today where the majority of preaching that we hear that bombards our ears on the radio, on TV, on the internet, in bookstores, in all the books that are being written, uh, all the articles that are being written, the crusades, the revivals, the conferences, all the places where, quote-unquote, preaching has taken place. We hear a bombardment that Jesus saves. Right? Everybody says that. I mean, everyone says Jesus saves. Matter of fact, you can probably find some people who don't even claim to be Christians. They have heard at some point or seen a billboard somewhere that says Jesus saves. John 3.16 Some sort of a passage and they can tell you that Jesus died for the world. They hear that. And the majority of the preaching that declares Jesus saves or that Jesus accomplished salvation, salvation is by the Lord, however they want to say it, the majority of the preaching that comes after that is get after it and get to work. Get out there and show that you've been saved by how much you do. Get out there and prove your salvation. I've heard people talk about, you know, the first portion of this verse, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I've even heard uh, some brothers of, in Sovereign Grace say you cannot divorce that first part from the second part, even though we're firm on the second part. That it is God who works in you both the will and the do His good pleasure. We cannot deny the fact that it says we are to work out. So there is a working to be done on our part. But brethren, while that is true, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that too cannot be divorced from the second part. It's all one, one, one thought, one idea. The working out of salvation is by the one who wills and to do inside of you. But yet we're told over and over and over again that there is this moral law, there is this ceremonial law, this civil law, and they've broken it all up into these pieces and that uh, while Christ came and died for us, He wiped out that ceremonial law and that civil law but yet the moral law still stands for us to keep. And that we are beholden to walk according to that rule. And if we don't walk according to that rule, we prove ourselves to be reprobate. And if we don't walk according to that rule, then we are not walking in sanctification. We are not conforming to the image of Christ. We are not progressing in our holiness. We're not progressing in our righteousness. I don't think I'm amiss in saying that that's what's being preached today. I know that's what's being preached because I used to preach it myself. I used to preach that before the Lord graciously revealed His gospel to me. I preached a man-centered gospel that relied upon me keeping something, me doing something, me responding. Me coming, me willing, me deciding 
me repenting, me believing, me keeping up religious efforts, me even yielding, my yielding, I have to yield myself to God so that He can work in me. I have to let God have control of my life so that He can will and do His good pleasure. Listen, brethren, if God wills and does His good pleasure in me, if it is He that gives me to will and to do of His good pleasure, then the willing of myself, my willing, is controlled by, subservient to, and in complete and total dependence upon God doing it in me. Not by me letting God do anything. I don't let God do anything. So, with all that being said, the going, the doing, the keeping up, the keeping up what? The Ten Commandments? The laws? All the laws? Well, we see here, and, and I, 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 I tried to stress a few of these words here to show us the teaching of Scripture that clearly teaches that the law, and again, it's not God never does break up the law in moral, civil, or ceremonial. I, I don't find that anywhere. Have you ever seen that, brother? I, I don't know anywhere, and I may be ignorant of that. If it's in Scripture, let me know. I've never seen where God divides the law into sections and then He disannuls, if we want to use the biblical word, in sections. The law was given as a whole to His people. The law was given to the priesthood to mediate on behalf of the people who were given the whole law. And the moral law, whenever it was broken by the people, had to come to the priest who by the ceremonial and the civil law had to make atonement for the ones who broke the moral. Therefore, the moral law is tied to the civil law and the ceremonial law, and without the civil and ceremonial law, the moral law cannot be atoned, breaking of the moral law cannot be atoned for. So therefore, the whole entire law comes as one unit because keeping the law, breaking the law, requires a priest, requires an atonement, requires the work of blood on their behalf. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The type, the shadow, the uh, the uh, uh, shadow of, of what Christ was to be in that priesthood, it came as a whole. And so all these people that say, well, we don't have the ceremony and the civil anymore, we just have the moral and we got to keep the moral law. And, uh, well, that's... All that came together in one package, one unit. Because the only way to relieve that moral law aspect in that Old Testament, Old Covenant, was to have a priest sacrifice an animal to do that on your behalf. 
It all came together. So it rises and falls together. And here we clearly see in the question that I asked a while ago, is if that made anybody perfect, if that made anybody saved, if that it kept anybody saved, if that was effective, then why is there any need for Jesus? That's the question going into this passage here. Is, if anybody can keep the law, and if anybody who's trying to keep the law thinks that if they keep the law, that that righteousness is going to be accepted, then there was no need for Jesus to come. And so that's the answer to the question. No, there's no need for Jesus to come if the first covenant, do this and live, was able to be done. But the very fact that those priests stood every day, year after year, an unchangeable priesthood that, I mean, a changeable priesthood that every time one died, someone had to take its place. Every time one got tired, another one had to come in behind him. That these priests all the time was rotating through, but nonstop the blood was always flowing because there was always people breaking the law was the testimony that man cannot keep this law. We see right here God, not me, not Paul who wrote this, not Calvinists, not sovereign gracers, not primitive Baptists, not this theological group or that theological group. God has said, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that any other priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? If that could happen, now we know that's a rhetorical question, it cannot happen because of the constant sacrifices, right? But we also know it cannot happen and it was never meant to happen because of the fact that another priest had to come. That another change came. But I want you to pay close attention here. Look in, if you would, in the parentheses there. It says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. See, the people received the law under that priesthood. What law is that talking about? Anybody? What law is that talking about? The law that was received under the first priesthood. It was all that that God had given Moses, right? Everything that everybody tells us that we have to run back and keep, try to keep, to live up to, to attain to, that was the law that was given under that priesthood. Everybody doesn't have a problem with the fact that the Bible says that there has been a change in the priesthood from the Levitical priesthood to the Melchizedek priesthood. Nobody has a problem saying that. In Arminian groups, among the sovereign grace groups, definitely, but even among the Arminian groups, we have no problem saying we have a better priest under the order of Melchizedek and not after the Levitical priesthood. We can say that all day long. 
But brethren, can we say that there is now no more law that was under that Levitical priesthood? No, we can't. There's so many people that wants to keep going back to the law that was given under the Levitical priesthood. See, with the coming in of another priest came in another law. With the coming in of another priest, there came in another covenant. With the coming in of another priest, there came in another testament. That's why we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why we have the Old Covenant and we have the New Covenant. Now it's not new in the fact of time lineage. Okay? Because we know that the New Covenant preceded the Old Covenant. Because the New Covenant was made from everlasting. The New Covenant was made before the foundation of the world. It was new in the fact of our experience of time, in the fact that God gave to man the law and the priesthood first, as a shadow, as a type, and as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. New in the fact that now that Christ has come, we now are experiencing everything that the everlasting covenant that God has had from all of time with His elect, that being seen and experiencing through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the, the, the covenant is in the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the New Testament in His blood. And so this New Testament has its own law. It has its own heirs. It has its own priest who is interceding and who is um, uh, mediating this covenant. And so it's hard for me to understand, at least now, that to me it's so clear in Scripture, but it's hard to under, for me to understand why people have such a hard time distinguishing that we are no longer under that Levitical Mosaic law. With a new priest came a new law. He says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law, what further need was there that any, uh, or that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek, and not after, and not be called after the order of Aaron? If I were to stop right now and just ask you guys, <clears throat> What is the one thing about Melchizedek that made him stand out than anybody else knowing about what the Bible has said about Melchizedek? What was, what's the one thing that stands out to you on that? Let's see if the first thing that comes to your mind that came to mind. There you go. That was the thing that I thought first. Whenever somebody says Melchizedek, the first thing that comes to your mind is the Bible has clearly said that he had no beginning. Okay? He had no beginning. So here we see that there was a priesthood that began with one priest and continued with multiple priests. Here is a here is a uh, priest that under Aaron, God gave a law, placed it in the priesthood. The priesthood then mediated that law. The law came, then the priest was appointed. 
and the priest was appointed to do that. But here we have something completely and totally different in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. We have something completely and totally different than that Levitical priesthood. We have, number one, a priest who has ever been. And we have a covenant that has ever been. And we have subjects of that covenant that are from everlasting in Christ Jesus, their mediator. See, these men had a changing priesthood and there was a people that was a changing people. But here we have a priest who is forever, a covenant that is forever, and a people who has been elect in Christ Jesus and under His mediatorial work, under His mediatorial suretyship, underneath His headship from before the foundation of the world in eternity. Whenever it was that God elected a people unto Himself. Now, brethren, that's completely and totally different. The terms of the covenant are completely and totally different. In this Levitical priesthood, the terms was, here's the laws, keep them. If you don't keep them, there has to be a sacrifice made, and if not, you die. In the terms of the everlasting covenant, the terms are, someone already did it for you. There is no laws to keep in the new covenant because the law in the new covenant, or excuse me, the law in the old covenant was kept by Christ. The law in the new covenant is completely and totally different. It isn't about something to do for righteousness. It isn't about something to do that you have to continue in your own efforts, but it's something that is put within you. God has put within us His love that is shed abroad in our heart. And that love that is put within us is something that we can't muster up in the natural man. It's not something that we can do. He has put that in us so that we might do what? Love God. Love the brethren. See, the new covenant comes new laws. The new priest comes a new mediatorial work. It's not an ongoing work. It was a once-for-all work. Let's look a little bit further. He says, verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. See, so here again, God is making very clear that this mediatorial work, this covenant, and this law that has, not under the Levitical priesthood, has changed. Look at verse 12 again. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of a necessity a change also of the law. Now that's very clear to me, brethren. There is a change in the priesthood, there is a change in the law. So that means that whatever law is intact under this new covenant, under this new priest, is not the same as what was under the Levitical priesthood. It has changed. If I were to go down to my bedroom and come back in and have on a green shirt and purple pants, that would not be the same shirt and the same pants. Now, I'm sure that there would be some legalistic sticklers who would say, 
Well, it's still denim and it's still cotton. It's still a shirt and it's still pants. Just a different color. No, they are different. Okay? They are different. There was a change made in the priesthood. There was a change made in the law. Now, if you want to keep saying that that's the same law that we're to keep, you're in direct contradiction to the Word of God that says it's a different law. Now back down into verse 15. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandment. That word carnal means fleshly commandment. Or a natural commandment. Christ didn't come, and there's two ways you can look at this. Christ was not made a priest after the law of Moses and how the priesthood was set up there. The priesthood there was set up by the Levitical tribe. He he designated the tribe of Levi that all the priests was to come from the tribe of Levi. Nobody could be a priest outside of the tribe of Levi. They were the only ones who could be eligible to be priests. Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi in the natural speaking. He came from the tribe of Judah. So he didn't have, according to the law of Moses, that God had give. He didn't have the right. He didn't have the uh, authority to be a priest under that law. He had to be from the tribe of Levi if he was. If he was. But he wasn't. So there again, that even more solidifies the fact that this priesthood is something different that has changed. He is not under the tribe of Levi, but under the tribe of Judah. He is not after Aaron. He is after Melchizedek. Aaron was somebody who was a temporal person. Melchizedek was forever. It is a different thing. It is a different covenant, a different law that He is mediating. He is not mediating the Old Covenant law in you. That's what a lot of people want to think that Christ is doing in you. And I've heard that said. I've preached it. i preached that a lot in my younger preaching days as an Arminian. i preached it is Christ in you doing the work. He's getting in you and getting to work. And what's He doing in you? He is going back and fulfilling those laws in you. Christ is not mediating that old law. He's mediating the new law. He is the mediator of a new testament. A new covenant that has new laws. I'm going to probably say that about 55 more times because I'm hoping that we begin to, to get that into our mind and understand if the Lord gives us that. I'm hoping that we begin to see how crazy this is that the whole thing of God working in us is to sanctify us in the law-keeping of the old law. He's not doing that. He is mediating the new covenant with the new law. Look what it says. Who was made not after the law of the carnal commandment. Now, like I said, that could be looked at two different ways. I, I think it looks means like after the natural order of the Levitical priesthood, by being of lineage, they succeeded as priests by their lineage. 
Christ wasn't made a priest by lineage. He was made, as it says right here, but after the power of an endless life. He was made a priest after the power of an endless life. I sat and pondered on that this morning for quite a while. I looked at I looked at the words behind that. I tried to find out the meaning of that. I even went and looked at a couple of commentaries just to see what some other smart men was thinking about it and everything. Sometimes smart men have smart things to say. And uh, sometimes the Lord does use some of that stuff to kind of help spark our thoughts about stuff. So I'm not totally discounting looking at something else. But that's not a rule of faith, right? That's not where we get our truth. Truth is in the Scriptures alone. Um, But after the power of an endless life. And this is where I seem to tie into verse 25 that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Look at verse 25 again. Wherefore, He is able to save them to the uttermost, into perfection. He is able to save them to the uttermost, without anything lacking. He is able to save them forever. He is able to save them for all time. He is able to save them to complete and total perfection so that God has nothing against them. No law is against them. No judgment is against them. No wrath is against them. Why? Because Christ has so utterly saved them that there can be no... uh, no... no, uh, Anything brought up against God's elect. For some reason, the, the word escaped me. No charges made against God's elect. None. That's how much He has saved them. But look what it says. Wherefore, He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing or because He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Remember, I was talking about last week that the intercession there was the fact that Jesus was there. The fact that Jesus is the high priest. And He's there as the mediator. And the fact that He has accomplished salvation to the uttermost and Him being sitting there on the throne of God is the intercession. The interceding of the fact that I have done everything to perfection for them and they are perfect in Me. But there is no more salvation that needs to be done on their behalf. There is nothing more that God requires on their behalf. And the interceding is the priest who did the mediatorial work. See, the priest had to sprinkle the blood. The priest made the sacrifice. The priest sprinkled the blood and applied it. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice and He sprinkled the blood and He sat down. And the fact that He sat down was proof that intercession has been made, is being made. There can be nothing else said he ever liveth to be the Melchizedek. He ever liveth to be the King of Righteousness. He ever liveth to be the perfect salvation for His people. You look at verse 16. He was made a high priest after the power of an endless life. The fact that He is the everlasting priest the ever, the never changing priest, the verse twenty five, the ever living priest who makes intercession. The fact that he lives forever is what gave him the right to be the priest of the new covenant. 
the priest of the new intercession, the priest of the new law. Why? Because he ever liveth. Now, we're going to find out why that is such a big deal. And that is because God himself declared it to be so. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before. There is a disannulling. What does the word disannul mean? Does anybody know what the word disannul means? That might be that might be pretty advantageous for us to know what that means. Because it says right here, there has been a verily, truly. That word verily means truly, right? When Jesus said verily, verily, whatever, he meant he said truly, truly. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't exaggeration. This isn't uh, you know sarcasm. Truly, truly, I say unto you, Jesus would always say. He says right here, for there is truly a disannulling of the commandment going before. Well, it might behoove us to know what that word disannul means. That word disannul means to do away with. To make no more. I was curious about this word. I tried to find where else it was found in Scripture. And so here, here's, here's a question that I'm going to pose to everybody and anybody watching and listening or whatever. <clears throat> We believe that this is God's Word. We believe that God's Word is given by inspiration of God. And that every word that God gives to us is an important thing. And He doesn't just throw words out. And He gives us something and He says something. And we believe that to be truth. Whether we believe it or not, it's truth. But we believe that to be truth. Then let's not make excuses to fit our theological system, right? Let's submit to the truth and say, my theological system has to change, right? That word disannul, I looked it up, what the Greek word was behind it, and so I searched through our King James Bible and found where that word is used. Other places where it's used to try to find what God's definition of it is. See, we can go to a lexicon find out what some man thinks it means. We can go to some dictionary and find out what Webster thought it meant. What the common man thinks it means. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with some of that stuff. Especially going back to the Webster's dictionary that gives you the definitions by the years. I think, I can't remember what year that is. The Webster's from 18-something. That will give you a definition, but it'll take you back and it'll show you what the definition of that was in different years. You can kind of get an understanding. So like in the King James, whenever they were talking, we can see a word. We can see how it was defined and how it was understood to mean in that time. That's a good thing to do, and we can do that stuff. But the best way to understand the Scripture is to let the Scripture define the Scripture. Let God define His own words for us. So what do we do? We look at the word that God used. So we look at the Greek word, see what the Greek word is, find everywhere in God's word that word was used. And then see the context of it. See how God used that word. And now we know what God meant by that word. And not by Mr. Lexicon or Mr. This or that. It's what God's word was. The word disannulling there is found in Hebrews 
For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That word put away there, that phrase put away, that is the exact same Greek word that is behind this and all. Now let me ask you a question, and I think it's a very important question. How far has God put away your sin? Do we still, does God still go back and dabble in your sin a little bit and bring it up before you? Is God going to hold a little bit of your sin against you? Is there some sin that God hasn't put away? He hasn't. Those ceremonial sins that you've done, those civil sins that you've done, God's put those away, but those moral sins, God still hasn't put those away. Now, how many sins have God has put away? Every one of them. And how completely has He put them away? Well, the Bible says that He's going to remember them no more, as far as the East is from the West. But there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because there's no sin. He hath not seen, or he hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, nor hath he seen perverseness in Israel. That's how much God has put away our sins. Brother, how much has God disannulled that first testament, that first law, that first priestly order? How far away has God changed the law? Completely and totally. In the fact that it's called a New Testament. He says, verse 19, or excuse me, verse 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before. Why? For the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For those of you that want the law of God, the Mosaic law, as your rule of life and think that it's your rule of life, hear what God says about His own law. Now, I'm not... Listen, the law is perfect. I believe like Paul does. The law is perfect. But the law is not perfect in gaining righteousness. The law is perfect in what it was intended for. Just like how Adam was made good, perfect, and upright. He was made perfect and good in the purpose for which God created him. The law was created for a purpose. Not to give righteousness. Not to make one righteousness. Not to uphold a righteousness. Sustain a righteousness. Not to... And listen, this is, a, this is the kicker one right here though. Even among sovereign graces. Not to prove a righteousness that has been given to you. The law is weak and unprofitable in the realm of righteousness to the people under whom it's been put, uh, they've been put. The people who are put under this law and under that priesthood, that law, that priesthood could never, ever, ever procure a righteousness 
keep a righteousness or even prove a righteousness. I can't prove righteousness by law keeping. Why? Because I can't keep it perfectly. The only way that the law is fulfilled or is kept is by perfectly keeping all of them. That's why I say you've got to have all three sections of that law if you want to break them down in sections. You've got to have all three. For the law made nothing perfect. In case you didn't think that I was telling the truth in verse 18, verse 19 makes it very clear. The law made nothing perfect and it is not making anything perfect now. But what did make perfect? We see in verse 25 that He is able to save them to the uttermost or to the perfection. But the bringing in of a better hope did. See, there was no hope under the law. There was absolutely no hope under the law, brethren. But the coming in of a better hope is. Now, a lot of people want to look at this better hope and talk, think it is a hope so. A bringing in of a better hope so. Well, I hope that I'm going to be made righteous by me keeping the law or God working in me to work out that righteousness. That's not what that's talking about. Matter of fact, this is not talking about a action or a feeling or an emotion or some sort of a characteristic of the child of grace. This is talking about a person. For the bringing in of a better hope did. Did what? Make perfect. See, me hoping on Christ don't make me perfect. Abraham hoping on Christ didn't make him righteous. Hope made us righteous. Who is hope? It is Christ Jesus. Preacher, do you have proof of that in Scripture that that's a person? Look, if you look back just a chapter, Hebrews chapter 6. Thereby, verse 18, or 17, excuse me, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who had fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't know about you, and again, I'm open for correction on this, whether it's uh, here or anywhere else. That's telling me that hope, in verse 18, hope in verse 19, is talking about Jesus. Therefore, hope in verse 19, who brings in a better hope, Whoever makes me perfect is done by a better hope. That's Jesus. It's not a faith. It's not a body of doctrine. It's not an earnest expectation. Now that word does mean earnest expectation in other contexts. But here, this is speaking specifically of Jesus. Our earnest expectation 
is in the object of Christ, who is our hope. The only hope you have of salvation is Christ. If He is not your hope, then you have no hope. That's what verse 6 is saying. God has made a promise by an oath that this covenant is going to stand, that this salvation is going to be to the uttermost, that everyone for whom it is intended is going to be the heirs of it, and God promised it, and He couldn't promise by anything greater, so He promised by His own name. And He said that we take refuge and lay hold upon the hope who is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Listen, brother, my hope being in Christ isn't an anchor for my soul because my hope languishes it sometimes. My hope comes and goes sometimes. No, what I have for an anchor of my soul, though, is something that cannot be moved, and that is the fact that a priest that has ever been, who has a law that is a better law, that has a better covenant, has mediated that on my behalf and it has absolutely nothing to do with what my hands bring to it. Therefore, I can't muck it up. I can't cause it to go south. I can't cause it to languish. I can't cause it to speed up because it has absolutely positively nothing to do with me. That's why the Lord calls it a testament. The word covenant that's used in here is actually, to my surprise, a different word found than the covenant that we find in the Old Testament. The word covenant here actually does mean a testament. And there's a difference between a covenant and a testament. Larry can attest to this. He just dealt with a testament just not too long ago. A testament is a will. And that will is written independently of anybody that that will may involve. For instance, if I made a will out, I'm going to write down in my will, after my death, this is what's going to happen, this is who it's going to happen to, and this is what they're going to be able to receive, and blah, 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 this is what it goes for. And that becomes a legal document. And according to, let's just say our, just our country's laws, that that will and testament, that thing stands. Nobody can break it. If that's what it says, it does. So say I leave everything to Wayland. Okay? I leave everything that I have, all this great, beautiful mansion and all the mighty things that I got, son. If I leave it to Wayland, and I write that down, and I put it in a will and testament, and it becomes a legal document, Zach can't testate that, or can't uh, come against that and say, wait a minute, Part of that's mine. I was his son too. Matter of fact, I was his first son. Caitlin can't say anything. Well, I was his first kid. Some of that's mine. No, the law has to say whatever that will says. That's what it has to do because the authority of that will is upon the one who made that oath that this is what's going to happen. Right? The one who owned it is the one who said this is how it's going to be divvied up. And nobody can say anything different about that. God was the one who made the covenant, who made the testament. 
And he chose within himself a people to heir it to. And united them with the testator of that will. Therefore, whatever the testator says about that heirship, it's going to happen. Why? Because he swore by his own name. I don't even know. I haven't seen a will in a long time. But most wills usually have some sort of a formality. The last will and testament of so-and-so and it has your legal name and all this kind of stuff on there so that we know exactly who this is talking about. God swore by His own name, this is how it's going to be. This is who it's going to. This is how it's going to be done. And this is what the end result is going to be. And He swore by Himself on that. And listen, the Bible says it's immutable. Guess what? That was before anything was ever created. That was before Adam fell. That was before anybody came came into sin, came into existence. That was before all things. God made this testament out. And guess what? Jesus is fulfilling everything in that. And it can't be changed. It can't be changed. That's what's wonderful about this salvation. Our hands don't have anything to do it. That's why it is a better hope. That's why He is the anchor of our soul. Because it doesn't depend on us. I posted something earlier this week that I was thankful that people's salvation, people's spirituality doesn't hang upon my uh, faithfulness, on my preaching, upon my witnessing, upon my keeping after them and urging them and admonishing them and all that kind of stuff. I'm thankful that the Lord is in control of all that stuff. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which, by the which, meaning Christ, we draw nigh unto God. Inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. So it wasn't without an oath. See, the Levitical priesthood came in by lineage. Christ came in by an oath of God. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever. His priesthood never ceases. As long as he is the priest, he is mediating the testament and all the terms of the testament. Think about this, brethren. Under the Old Covenant, the Bible says that Moses was the mediator of that Old Covenant. There was God's side, and we've seen the law, but there was nobody on man's side to mediate that covenant. Nobody. Now, the priests were given their duties but that never did mediate the covenant. It never did cleanse the conscience. It never did make anyone righteous. I mean, it never did work. Why? Because it was, what does it say there? It was weak and unprofitable. We hear in other places in the Scripture because of the weakness of the flesh and not being able to keep it. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Why would you want to go back to a not so better testament? Why would you want to go back to the other testament 
and live under the, med- uh, the, the other testament, which is weak, which is unprofitable, which cannot make perfect, which never was intended for righteousness. That law was not for righteousness. But yet you're saying we got to keep that to be righteous. we got to keep that to show forth righteousness. It says here there is a better testament. There is a better covenant. There is a better law. We had an old uh, expedition that sat out here at the side of our house for several years that didn't work. Run it down. We finally sold it to somebody, but it didn't It didn't work. It, I mean, it had all kinds of problems. As a matter of fact, after it sat out there for a little while, it started getting all the little green fungusy stuff that grows on the side of your house. You got that on there. Now, if I had somebody come up into my yard and want to buy a car, and they had a choice either between my car that I have now and that car. They say, well, tell me what's all the deal. I said, well, this car out here, it doesn't run. The engine's shot. The tires are flat. They won't air up. It has a little bit of stink in there because we've been storing stuff in there. And there's green junk all over. You'll definitely need to power wash it. The paint's faded. It's got its issues. It's got over 200,000 miles on it, even if you do get the engine going. Then I got this car out here. I mean, it runs good, it drives good, it's, everything's good on it, nothing wrong with it. Tip top shape. Well, I tell you what, won't you give me that one out there, man? I really like that one. Well, you sure you don't want this one? It's a better car. Oh, no, man, I'll take that one. It was here first. See, why, why do people want to live under a law? They can't do anything for you except condemn you. Why do people think that they have a righteousness that is being worked out in them by a mediator that doesn't even work under that priesthood? That doesn't even work under that law? That's clear from Hebrews 7. Jesus doesn't mediate under that law. And you think He's mediating that law through you? How can that be? How can he be? How can that be that he is doing it? Whenever Paul says we establish the law, we establish the law, but it's not that one. It's the law of Christ, the new priest, the Melchizedek priest, the New Testament priest, the new law priest. We establish that law. He says, by so much was Jesus made a surety. We all know what a surety is, right? A surety is one who makes sure that something takes place. We, 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 we have bail bondsmen, right? They're a surety. They go before the court on behalf of somebody else and they put up money for these and they say, we'll guarantee that these people will come back to court whenever it's time for them to come back to court. Right? So they give some money up to the court. The people get out of jail. Okay? But yet they have an impending court date. Well, if those people don't pay their bail, if they don't come and uh, show up for court, what happens? The bail bondsman goes after them looking for them. Right? He is the surety mediating between the court and the transgressor 
to make sure that that transgressor pays up what is due. Jesus Christ is the surety to make sure that everything for whom he mediates, that the whole terms of the covenant are made. But guess what? He's not sitting here poking and prodding and pushing you saying, you need to get after it or it ain't going to get done. You better start living up to it or you're not going to get it. If you don't do this, I'm will, I'm pushing you to will and to do because if you don't will and to do, wrath is coming. That's not how he mediates it. How does he mediate the covenant? By sitting down at the right hand of God, have presented his blood and the salvation already made once for all, and says, it is finished. That's how he mediates. He mediates by his his perpetual existence as the testator. The one who has wrote it down. The one who has accomplished it. The one who is the heir of it all. The one who is divvying it all out. The one who is making sure it is being applied as the law has given to be applied. The one who is sitting there saying, It is my blood. It is my people. It is my salvation. It is my way. My purpose. Everything about the whole shebang is by Him. He is making sure that it happens. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God before by him, because he ever lives to make intercession for them. He is interceding for them, brethren, but he is not mediating the old covenant. Your salvation, your rule of life, your righteousness, your hope, your acceptance with God, your keeping with God has absolutely, positively nothing to do with the old covenant, the old law, and the old priesthood. But has everything to do with the new covenant, the new priest, and the new law under which Christ is the king. Christ is the mediator. That's Melchizedek. The word Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He is the one who is the king of righteousness. He is the one who establishes righteousness. He is the one who imputes righteousness. See, righteousness isn't something that we earn or isn't something that we work out or something that we work up. It isn't something that we do at all. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Rather than our hope is in the Lord. Our righteousness is in Him. He's the mediator of that new law. Anybody have anything to add to that? Can we sing 203? We can sing 203. Or we can attempt to sing 203. Before we sing, does any other brother have anything to add or correction or anything? Or anything you want to expound upon? I'm taking 203 today. Expounding?